This episode of Astronomy Cast is sponsored by MagellanTV.com. Check out this new streaming service with your exclusive two-month free trial by clicking over to MagellanTV.com slash AstronomyCast. Now, this isn't a normal part of the ad, but I have to say the landing page they made for AstronomyCast is amazing. Once you get to MagellanTV.com slash AstronomyCast, you can dive into a collection of documentary movies, series, and exclusive playlists. Designed by documentary filmmakers, this growing platform is adding new content weekly and is already home to a who's who of the best productions. From the overview effect to the NSF-funded Seeing the Beginning of Time, there is an amazing selection of space and astronomy-related content. Watch in 4K from Roku or on your computer, or stream on any iOS or Android device. I lost track of a bunch of hours on Saturday afternoon diving through history, and you can explore the solar system, travel to distant stars, and experience the universe like never before. Once again, you can check out this new streaming service with your exclusive two-month free trial by clicking over to MagellanTV.com slash AstronomyCast. AstronomyCast, episode 524, Age and Origins, part three, Beyond the Solar System. Welcome to AstronomyCast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today. With me, as always, is Dr. Pamela Gay, a senior scientist for the Planetary Science Institute and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? Doing great. I have, like, literally no news. That says something, considering you're the publisher of Universe Today. Okay, possibly we have some news there. And if you want to find out what that news is, you should sign up for my weekly email newsletter at universetoday.com slash newsletter, which I just sent out the door. Maybe that's part of it, is that whenever I write my new newsletter each week, it just completely empties out of my brain. Oh, uh, Sky and Telescope is for sale, so somebody should buy that and, and take good care of it because... It's true, please. Yeah, because Sky and Telescope was like the most meaningful piece of magazine periodical growing up. I found a pile of Sky and Telescope magazines at a garage sale uh, on Hornby Island, and I must have gotten my hands on like 40 or 50 of them. And so then, oh, wow. yeah, so it was this huge collection that covered uh, like a decade. And someone was obviously a collector. And so I just, I just went through them and just that's what taught me to be interested or that's what taught me the fine details of astronomy, where what thing, what objects were up, how to find them, techniques and, and things like that. And so I know for a lot of people that are listening to the show, Sky and Telescope is like, was the Bible for astronomy, like really good, hard science, uh, as you know, observing guide and uh, and it's it's too bad that it's sort of gone through some tough times. People keep saying, "Will the universe today put it in offer?" No, yeah, I don't think I can afford it. <laughs> I wouldn't even know what to do with it. I you know I, I we don't kill trees at universe today. We just uh, we just push electrons around. So, um, but anyways, but if someone does have money and wants to take care of it. Uh, it should be up for sale in the next uh, couple of months. 
All right. Let's okay. <laughs> On that cheerful note. Uh, we learned how to figure out the ages of objects in the solar system. Now we push out into the deeper universe. What about stars, galaxies, and even the universe itself? How old is it all? All right, so we kind of half taught people how to figure out how old stars are, but we have not taught people how to figure out how old stars that aren't the sun are very well. That is fair. So that let's is fair. so let's start there with with how do we figure out how old stars are in the wider universe? Well, there are a bunch of different ways. And the newest way that scientists have come up with is to actually look at how fast stars are rotating. And this was something that I never knew would be a thing. And one of the factors I loved most was the press release actually said how to pronounce this technique, which is gyrochronology. I love so, that term. <laughs> it just like uh, gyroscope. Uh, the the idea is that stars change their speed over time as they undergo mass loss. And as that mass is carried away, so too is the angular momentum of the system. And uh, so it's super difficult to measure the rotational velocities of stars. But if you can do it, this is the cool new way that the cool kids with the best instruments are measuring the velocities of stars are, and their ages. So I'm trying to think about how you would measure that, right? How do you measure the rotation of a star? And then how do you know what the rotation tells you about the age of the star? So how do you measure the rotation of a star first? The, the most accurate way to do it is to look at stars that have sunspots and measure how long it takes for that sunspot to go across the face of the star. So just like we measure the rotation rate of our sun to first order by watching those little sunspots march across the front, we can look at changes in brightness of distant stars that are tied to changes in whether or not we're seeing sunspots on that distant star. That's amazing. Yes. Right, that you can see sunspots moving across the face of a star, but by, I guess by like how much light they're putting out, and then you can use that as a way to say, okay, that's probably a sunspot. And then when it returns to that same level of brightness, just a couple of, say, weeks later, then, then that's probably that same group of sunspots is moving across the surface again. Mind-bending. Um, yes. Now, I would also assume that there's some way sort of with the Doppler effect that you can measure the like the the sides of stars to sort of get a sense of how quickly they're turning. One it's, part of the star well, is moving away from if, you and one part of the star is moving towards you. If only you could separately measure the light coming from either side of the star, but we don't quite have the capacity okay. to do that. So what we do instead is we look at the line broadening, but there's a complexity to this that can add a lot of error to the measurements. And that complexity is gravity. So the surface gravity of a star also affects the thickness of the spectral lines of a star. So if you can accurately figure out what kind of a star it is, what kind of mass it likely has, you can make assumptions about what its surface gravity will be and make assumptions about how that gravity will affect the width of the lines. And then you can assume that whatever is left behind is 
line thickening due to rotation. But it's a much less precise right. method. Although, to be fair, uh, we're looking at sunspots on distant stars where we're going, aha, its brightness dipped this many percentages and then came back up in a non-periodic way. Therefore, this is a sunspot. Uh, so this is one of those techniques that is sort of like, wow, there's a lot of error, but this is cool. That's amazing. Uh, okay, so so that's your your method for for stars. So now we we are measuring the speed that a star is turning. How do we then use that to figure out how old the star is? Well, this is where you have to couple different methods. And just like we have a distance ladder for measuring the distances of stars, we kind of have an age ladder for measuring the ages of stars. And this age ladder is based on our understandings of stellar evolution that is then grounded in radioisotopes. And then we extend it out now with the rotations of stars. So the science teams that did this, uh, they were looking primarily at main sequence stars. These are stars like our sun that are burning primarily hydrogen and helium in their core. Uh, and they were looking at late F, G, K, and M stars. So these are the smaller kinds of stars. And in systems where you have a main sequence, where you have stars that are still in the process of evolving, this means that you may have your biggest stars have already, well, stopped being main sequence stars. They've already evolved away. And because stars predictably from largest to smallest evolve off the main sequence, finish burning that hydrogen and helium in their core, other processes for bigger stars, as they evolve off, that point says, okay, everything more massive than this is done burning. Everything below this is still burning. And from radioisotopes, which we talked about before, we can get precise ages for that point for stars that are close enough to get high enough resolution spectroscopy. And we use stellar evolution models for systems that are further away that we can't accurately measure. Uh, so through a combination of stellar evolution models and actually getting to measure things from radioisotopes, we can say, okay, when we see this turnoff, it means this age. When we see this turnoff, it means this age. Hmm. Now, now that technique of measuring the spins of things um, can tell you uh, like how some degenerate objects are how old they are and i think the the best example of this right is is pulsars and all neutron stars that whole and whole process right by measuring the spin rate you can tell kind of how old the object is and this is also reliant on them being in isolated systems if you have a massive star that goes supernova, collapses down to something tiny, it's initially going to have a much larger rotation rate. Over time, its rotation is going to slow for a whole variety of different reasons. But this starts to give you relative ages of different systems. Now, the reason I say that this only works with isolated stars is it's possible to transfer angular momentum between stars in a binary system. 
So anytime you're looking at the rotation rate of something, it needs to be the non-influenced rotation rate. We can see this in our own Earth where we're, to some estimations, a binary planet with our own moon. And our rotation rate is slowing as the moon moves further away. And it's this tidal locking of our two systems that is in the process of heading towards being completely tidal locked that we're changing the rotation rates of both worlds as we evolve their separation right um i mean like you know when a star goes supernova it you know if it's more massive than you know much you know whatever five times more massive than the sun then you get a neutron star as the outcome and they start out having a ton of that <clears throat> that that angular momentum they're spinning very quickly this is a pulsar and the fastest millisecond pulsars are the ones that are the freshest right and then as over time they are losing their energy how <laughs> right what is causing them to slow down so you can actually end up with the stars deforming themselves uh, filling their roche lobes essentially uh, where the side of each star that's pointed towards the other deforms and gravity tugs extra on that. And so you have this slowing because the stars aren't perfect spheres because they're pulling on each other. So this is a tidal effect. You also have mass loss effects, mass transfer effects, which can speed up one star while slowing down the other. Well, uh, I'm even just I'm talking more like an individual star, not necessarily one that's mm. in a binary system. Right? Like, How does an so, individual star... Mass slow loss. with rotation but also um expansion uh, and, so, and, and so gravitational waves right like can't they or not gravitational waves but can't they can't they lose momentum uh just like into space itself i forget the the method maybe so, I'm, so that, maybe that it's only again, in a binary system you can you can have gravitational radiation and that that is something that we worry about with compact stars with compact compact star binaries right um, for your average binary system, that is less of a concern. And it's more like you shed mass, you slow down. Um, unlike humans who shed mass and speed up, but uh, stars have their own way of working. Um, so what about white dwarfs? Now, now white dwarfs, they, they are awesome insofar as they start out super hot it's it's a leftover stellar core from a star like our sun that has poofed off its outer atmosphere to form a planetary nebula and that diamond in the sphere that is left behind is white hot initially but it's not generating new heat over time it's simply radiating a heat away to outer space and this means that over time, it is cooling off. It's becoming less luminous. And it should be doing this in a way that is completely predictable. The question is, are our theories correct? And, and this is the modern challenge, not whether or not this technique can be used, but um, how well 
do our theories match reality because there's phase transitions that go on as the star cools that uh, new thinking is that these phase transitions within the star may cause uh, them to linger at one particular apparent luminosity for longer than they might uh, remain at other apparent luminosities. But but over time, you know, give it billions of years, trillions of years, they should cool down to the background temperature of the of the universe. And so you should be Black able stars. Yeah. And so you should be able to measure the temperature of a white dwarf and know roughly how old it is knowing what temperature it probably started at. And this is where reading really old astronomy papers and literature becomes fun, is you have astronomers that were talking about black dwarfs, black stars, and they're simply talking about really cold stars, not some euphemism for black holes. Right. So that white dwarf over the fullness of time is going to become invisible to the human eyeball. That's really cool. All right, so the, so we can we have a way of trying to figure out how old a lot of stars are. If they're in binary systems, then that messes things up. What about galaxies themselves? Can we get a sense of how old the galaxy is and when it came together? We, we can get a limit on it. So if you look at a star system that doesn't have ongoing um, star formation going on, and you measure uh, what are the general population of the stars, red and dead is the phrase that's generally used, that tells you that that galaxy is at least old enough to have formed and evolved all those stars. So it puts a limit. And then the other thing is, we're looking back at back in time with most galaxies. So when I look at the light of a galaxy that has been traveling to reach me for 12 billion years, because light doesn't move instantaneously. So the further away something is, the further and back in time I get to look. When I look at these 12 billion light year away systems, and I see stars that are millions to maybe even billions of years old. Well, not billions at that point, millions of, to hundreds of millions of years old. That tells me that system must have formed at least if there's 500 million year old stars. And I'm looking at something 12 billion light years away. That means it has to have formed at least 12 and a half billion years ago. And it's these limits that are really exciting to us as we look back at the most at the furthest systems, because we get to see galaxies that we know are in the process of forming because they haven't been there long enough for this to be their fourth generation of dying stars. If I look at a nearby galaxy and it's all red stars, it might have gone through seven generations of star formation and have, fought, uh, right. have formed at the beginning of the universe. So looking at galaxies, I have to combine the redshift information that tells me loosely how far away it is, uh, supernova information if I've got that, and then combine it with how old are the oldest stars that I'm able to tell are there by the combined spectra of light from that system. There's actually a couple, a couple of other objects that I just realized that are connected to that. One is to know how old globular clusters are. Yes. Because they're often used as a way to age the our own system our own yeah our own galaxy right so so when we, we think of these globular clusters these gigantic 
balls of hundreds of thousands of stars, how do we know how old they are? It, it goes back to that main sequence turnout, turnoff that I spoke about earlier in the show. Globular clusters are these fabulous things that we don't fully understand the formation mechanism for, where all the stars in the system are made out of one kind of material, one mixture of stardust and gas, and all the stars were formed out of one epoch of star formation. And since they're all made of the same stuff, they're all going to evolve in similar ways. Since they were all formed at the exact same time, that tells me that the largest stars I see on the main sequence are indicative of the age of that solar system, uh, the age of that globular cluster. So if there are stars on the main sequence that would die in say it's an open cluster instead of a globular cluster that would die in 500 million years. If those st stars are still on the main sequence, that means it's less than 500 million years. Right. Now, if I look a bit bigger and I'm like, oh, there's nothing there that would live for 200 million years, all those things have gone supernova, that starts to give me this narrow window of how old that system is. Now I can keep doing that, keep going further and further down the main sequence until I get to stars that are billions of years old. Now the complexity here is these are theoretical ages based on how long do we think it takes to go through all these different stages of evolution. And uh, Again, when we can, it's great to be able to get high resolution spectroscopy and start to nail down these ages, not just with the main sequence turnoff period, but also by looking at the compositions with high resolution spectrographs and measuring uh, through nuclear cosmic chronography, what is the age due to radioisotopes? Right. I, I mean, I love this idea that you look at a, at a globular cluster and you don't see any stars that can live for 10 billion years. Yeah. Therefore, you know, or that all of the 10 billion year old stars have died. Therefore, the globular cluster is older than 10 billion years, which is a, which is just and then you can just say, oh, but there are some 12 billion stars that can live 12 billion years. Therefore, it's possible that that cluster is is less than 12 billion years old, which is an amazing idea. Um, one more sort of astronomical thing, and then I want to move to sort of the big question. So the, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we see and I, we report on this all the time on Universe Today, like we see a supernova remnant. And we'll say, oh, the, you know, this supernova remnant happened 5000 years ago. How do we know that? That comes down to uh, there isn't anything to stop a bullet in space. And when that bullet is part of the outer layer of a star, it just keeps expanding out at a fairly constant rate. With uh, some supernova remnants like the Crab Nebula, we can look out and over decades, we can actually see in the images, and this goes back to talking about Sky and Telescope at the beginning of this episode, Sky and Telescope had a fabulous collection of these images that they used to distribute to schools, where you can measure with a ruler on the images how the outer layers of the, the nebula are moving outwards relative to the stars. And by knowing the dates that these different images were taken and the distance to the system, 
you could measure the expansion rate. Now, if you know the expansion rate, you work it backwards to when was this thing compressed down to the size of a star, and that gives you the the how long has it been expanding. Now, we are lucky with some of these supernova that we actually have archaeological right. archaeological uh, records, so we can check our work. And it's amazing to be able to look out and say, yes. Uh, that particular supernova was observed by Kepler, by Bra- by Brahe, by the Chinese, by these indigenous people, by Hecht Space Telescope in 1987, and and see the remnants expanding over time, and then be able to look at other things where we see these light echoes traveling through space, and then we can track them back and say there was a supernova here and even though no one noticed it we know when it happened all right so uh we've got enough time to ask the big question which is how do we know how old the universe itself is it it actually builds on how we know how old supernova remnants are we look at the expansion rate of our universe and we run it backwards now there are checks and balances there are other ways that we're like does all of this make sense we look at the fine detailed structure in the cosmic microwave background and that helps us understand oh expletive the cosmic microwave background had to have gone through a massive inflationary period therefore from this massive inflationary period things it was it was a non-smooth expansion I but we can work things out to get at detailed theories that replicate what we see to model the first 300 to 400,000 years of the universe to replicate the observed cosmic microwave background. From there, we can measure the expansion rates as a function of time and see the gradual changes that are taking place. And then we just do an integration. It's all calculus all the way down. I I did some research in this on an on an article one time or video and like if you could see the cosmic like the cosmic microwave background this is this moment when the universe became transparent and light was able to escape out into the universe for the first time and and if you could be there to see it when it happened um you would see like a reddish glow yes would be the color that you would see but now as we the, see it as a as a big a cause as the cosmic microwave background and so it's that redshift that's happened over time as those regions that were once red have now been pushed away that that we see them that the wavelengths have been stretched out to the point that we see them in in microwave and that's your math right that tells you what age of how much expansion time would it require to take what was reddish light in the beginning to make it look like it was microwave light today and and that gives you a limit so we know how fast the cosmic microwave background is moving away from us now the question is has the rate that the universe is expanding changed and, and it's sort of like if you know that I was going 90 miles per hour for the first hour of a journey 
and you know that I'm going somewhere between 70 and 100 at the end of the journey, you can guesstimate based on knowing the distance uh, how, how long it took me to travel if you just assume I went 90 the whole time. But if my speed varied at a constant rate, which is what we think now happened is the acceleration, uh, is there is an acceleration term to the expansion. Um, it gives you a finer detail. This is where we keep um, adjusting our numbers over time. And I mean, we look at say, you know, I think when we started astronomy cast, the estimate was 13 and a half billion years old, then it mm -hmm. went to 13.7 billion years old. And now we're at 13.77, I think, billion years old. And the the error bars are getting narrower and, oh, yeah. and narrower at this point. Are you looking at the exact most recent yeah, estimate in my head? <clears throat> yeah, it's 13.772. According there you go. Uh, yeah, those those yeah. Um, oh, no, Planck, Planck measured at 13.82. Oh, there you go. So Planck and Planck is the newest measurement. The most yeah. accurate measurement of the cosmic microwave background gave us this incredibly accurate estimate. Why? Why does a more accurate measurement of the cosmic microwave background give us a more accurate understanding of how old the universe is? This this is where it starts to come down to uh, matching the fine grain structure in in the background, which starts to tell us how long it was before the Big Bang. Um, so when I was in grad school, I remember learning it was 300 years from zero to cosmic microwave background. We now tend to teach it's more like 400. So that gets you part of the difference. Uh, and then Thousand. it's just a more... Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's now a, I think it's, it's three hundred eighty thousand. I forget the exact number. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's now a also more accurate color measurement. So when you combine the more accurate color, the more accurate understanding of how long it took, and it also gives us a more accurate understanding of the geometry of the universe because how you expand and how the geometry is, it all factors together. So. There's multiple different things at play. There isn't a simple answer, um, but it all comes down to knowing how long it took to get from zero to cosmic microwave background, how long it took to get from cosmic microwave background to now based on changing expansion rates. Um, so yeah. Amazing. So there you go. That's how you know old everything is, if anyone asks. Um, Pamela, do you have some names to read this week? I, I do. So this is the part of the show where we're working our way through thanking the wonderful pa patrons that, well, help us pay Susie. Without you, Susie would not be paid. Um, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this week we went to thank, oh... This week, we want to thank someone with a complicated name. Uh, Kenslia Pantnienko. Nice. Uh, <laughs> Shannon Humber, David Gates, Eric Frenger, Rachel Fry, Frederick Shorgi, Claudia Mastrani, Tyrone Fong, uh, Neuter Dude, Darcia Daniels, Kristen Brooks, Thomas Tubman, Jimmy Berkson, Arthur Laz Hall, Omar Del Riviero, Chad Collins. 
Colopy, Mark Stephen Raznak, G4184, and William Lauer. Thank you for being part of our Patreon crew. To those of you who have not yet said Astronomy Cast is worth $5 a month instead of getting that extra Starbucks, I'm going to support this podcast I love. Don't make me send, well, we can't lean on Ira Glass, so don't make me send your friends to have me mock you. <laughs> um, please consider giving. It doesn't take a lot to make a huge difference. And we are grateful and we try and make it worthwhile for all of you. We have Patreon office hours most Sundays. Uh, we have special rewards. You can get your name on our website. And most of all, you have my complete thanks by name. I will thank you as I read your names looking at our Patreon. Patreon. So let me thank you. Patreon allows us to make this information. 524 episodes of a astronomy information available to anyone who wants to listen to to it and learn about the universe we don't have to put it behind a paywall this is our way to make it available to as many people as possible and we couldn't do this without the support of the patrons so if this is a model that you support if you like this then then definitely get involved go to astronomy sorry go to patreon.com astronomycast and uh, and pitch in all right thanks pamela we'll see you next week Thank you, Fraser. See you later. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Eighth Light Inc. Eighth Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. Eighth Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.eighthlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thlight.com. Drop them a note. Eighth Light. Software is their craft. Thank you for listening to Astronomy Cast, a nonprofit resource provided by the Planetary Science Institute, Fraser Kane, and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at Astronomy Cast. You can email us at info at astronomycast.com. Tweet us at astronomycast, like us on Facebook, and watch us on YouTube. We record our show live on YouTube every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific, or 1900 UTC. Our intro music was provided by David Joseph Wesley. The outro music is by Travis Searle, and the show was edited by Susie Murph.